Hey, Rockheads, you've probably heard Richard and I talk a lot about Erlang and Elixir lately. Really cool stuff. Well, learning this stuff is challenging for us .NET guys, and I want to tell you about Elixir Sips. This is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. So if you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, ElixirSips.com is perfect. It's around two short screencasts each week between 5 and 15 minutes, it currently consists of over 20 hours of densely packed videos in more than 180 episodes, and there are more every week. Uh, Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, an expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. And .NET Rocks listeners get a special deal. Find out more and sign up for three months with a 33% discount at elixirsips.com slash .netrocks.html. .NET Rocks, episode 1179, with guest Matt Rock. Recorded Monday, August 3rd, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks time again. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here... On show 1170-something, what the heck is going on here? Well, you know, if you keep making these things, the numbers keep going up. That's really funny. I'm glad I chose a four-digit number scheme. Well, I remember you talking about that a long time ago, you know. <laughs> yeah. <I mean. laughs> like, you want to do what? <laughs> yeah, we didn't even think we'd make a 1,000. Yeah, well, I remember how shocked you were when we made a 100. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, anyway, I've got something for our guitar playing listeners out there for Better Know Framework today. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Oh, and by the way, I am drinking some Chef coffee, the beans of which I got at Bean and Leaf, and out of my Pwop uh, Studios mug, right? Nice. Here we go, ready? Ah, piping hot. I, love I it. remember that coffee geek out. Yeah. And this was the super coffee. Yep. This is the perfect stuff. Turns out that Yerga Chef is indeed my favorite as well. So thanks, Hugh Griffin, for that. All right. Go to tinyurl.com slash Gibson Self Tuner. As you may know, guitar players, Gibson uh, makes probably the most iconic electric guitar. One of the two, anyway, the Fetter Stratocaster the Fender Stratocaster being one of them, and the other being the Gibson Les Paul, which was invented by uh, Les Paul, famous inventor and musician who uh, invented the solid body electric guitar. Anyway. And who you met later in life, I too. did, a year before he died, and that, that was sad, but he was an, an old man, and he was amazing. Okay, so uh, Gibson has come out with a self-tuning Les Paul, and this came out, I don't know, a few years ago. And uh, so that was fairly high tech. You know, it was self-tuning the whole, but you had to buy the whole guitar. Now they've actually created a tuner that goes on your guitar on ba in back of the headstock. And it's sort of a, a robot tuner. And uh, I went looking for them for sale, you know, with, with Google Marketplace. Right, right. Places. I can only find two of them used. On Reverb.com. Wow. However, if you go to Amazon.com and search for Gibson GeForce, which is their technology, you will find 
not uh, Gibson, but another company called Tronicle. Tronicle Robot Tuners, they make these tuners for Gibson guitars. You'll also know if you look at these that there are 10 reviews. Half of them are five-star reviews. Four of them are one-star reviews. Oh, wow. And only one is a three-star review. And the one-star reviews all have the same complaint. Plastic crap. Brakes, you can't replace them. They're not warranted. Not good. So what I take away from this uh, story on Marketplace Tech here, while my guitar gently tunes itself, is that this is coming technology from Gibson. It's going to be on most of it, standard on most of its 2015 electric guitars. And probably if you want uh, a better version of this, you wait and see if Gibson is going to sell them uh, as standalone things. I, I think they probably will, but... But it is interesting, isn't it? Because, first of all, I have a Les Paul, and it stays in tune better than any other electric guitar I have. And that's also because I know how to tune and wind strings, right? Right. When you And we're getting a little technical here for non-guitar people, I'm sorry. But the secret to getting an electric guitar to stay in tune is, one, you use a graphite nut or some other slippery metal. Do not use brass or something sticky. Use something like graphite and also only spin it around once and lock the string. So when you have a, a string, you wrap it around itself and then just one time around, that's it. And then stretch the strings out and they won't go out of tune. So I kind of find it ironic that my the guitar that is best known for staying in tune Needs a robot tuner. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Well, why do I? Why would I do that? However, you're still tweaking. You know, you're like you're playing a gig or whatever. The air air conditioning affects it. Uh, uh, heat and humidity affect it, and just sure. you know, playing tends to knock them out a little bit. So, and would you actually leave this thing on while you were playing, and it would keep you in tune? Well, that's the whole idea that it's built into the tuning gears like the tuning right. gears are connected to it it goes on the back of the headstock and it's there all the time and you just say i want standard tuning and it keeps it in tune so if while you're playing your b string goes flat it just tunes it up for you wow that's amazing it is. what happens if a string breaks well you know you you and i know that you, you really have to wind it a lot higher than uh than the tension is allowed for you know in yeah order for it to break so it's not going to do that either. It's not It's not going to break the string, but you might break a string. I mean, strings break. Well, if you break a string, it doesn't matter whether you have a robot tuner or not. You've no. really got to change it. So I just hope the tuner doesn't freak out. Well, I would think that the engineers at Gibson sort of yeah, allowed for that. that. It's like, <laughs> if you're having no success at all, maybe there's no string. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's probably a way that you can just turn it off while you're changing strings so it doesn't freak out. Uh, yeah. But there you go. It's uh Technology. Robots come to guitars. That's right. Robots come to guitars. Yep. That's cool. All right. So who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1158, the one we did with one Justin James. We talked about Nougat, Chocolatey, Boxstarter, and Vagrant. And if you recall, I read a comment uh, a couple weeks ago uh, from this show as well that Matt Rocks answered, and I sent him a mug. And this comment comes from Chris, who says, uh, thanks for the interesting show. As a student making a transition from Linux world to Windows and .NET, I really enjoy Vagrant for managing Linux VMs on Windows, and I found Chocolatey to be a fine parallel to using repositories on Linux. This show has me eager to start playing around with Windows VMs using Boxstarter. 
Shortly after listening to the show, I ran into a painful situation with Hyper-V, and I thought it would be relevant to share here. I recently decided to make the switch from Virtual Box to Hyper-V. I couldn't find a suitable Vagrant box online that supported Hyper-V, so I went through the process of creating my own. Unfortunately, Hyper-V for Windows 10 makes compatibility-breaking changes on how it exports config files. Of course, this was done while Windows 10 was still in beta, so really going to be a struggle. Uh, so for now, it appears that Vagrant can no longer import boxes that were packaged using Hyper-V. This leaves me with two undesirable options, using Hyper-V without Vagrant, horrors, and waiting for a fix, or going back to virtual box. This whole experience makes me feel like Windows is once again an edge case, and I'm being punished for using a Microsoft product in an open source ecosystem. Even for an optimist like myself, experience like this make me worry that the Windows support story for other open source tools like Docker... And again, Chris, I'm, I'm with you. You were using a beta OS, so easy. You know, there is a challenge there. But Matt answered his question and pointed him to hurryupandwait.io, which is actually a walkthrough on how to convert a virtual box image to a Hyper-V Vagrant mm-hmm. box. And, uh, of course, that's fo- most of the time when you were talking about Hyper-V instances, you're talking about 2012 R2 and other server instances as well. But... There is definitely a way, and Matt, thanks so much for helping out Chris there. You've already got a mug. Chris gets one now, crew. So, Chris, a mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or through any of the social medias. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. If you write a comment there, we can read it, and we'll send you a mug. We absolutely will. We're also on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Feel free to tweet about us or to us or whatever. We, uh, we read everything and occasionally answer things, too. So, uh, with that, let me introduce our guest, Matt Rock. That's W-R-O-C-K, Matt Rock on .NET Rocks. He has over 15 years of experience as a software developer, primarily in the Microsoft space, and most recently has been focusing on infrastructure automation and testing with PowerShell and Ruby on multiple platforms. Matt works for CenturyLink Cloud, focusing on data center automation. Prior to CenturyLink, Matt worked for Microsoft as a senior software engineer. Matt is an avid OSS contributor with contributions to Vagrant, Test Kitchen, Pester, the Ruby WinRM gem, Chef, Chocolatey, and the founder of Boxstarter and resident blogger at hurryupandwait.io. Welcome, Matt. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for uh, for having me. And, and uh, let me just say, I, I really... Um, uh, sympathize with uh, your 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 commenter. First of all, I, I had a lot of the same. Uh, you know, obviously, I I had the same reaction as he did. I was like, you know, I was so excited to use Packer and uh, with Hyper V, and just nothing worked. And finally, I just I gave up on Hyper V and uh, was re- using VirtualBox, and um, and then discovered that I could. Oh, you know, what? I can easily automate converting these VirtualBox um, uh, boxes to uh, to Hyper V. But you know, he also made the comment, and I think a lot of people feel this way. That when you're in, um, when you're coming from a from a, a Windows perspective, or you're you're working with Windows automation, you're using these types of tools like Vagrant and Packer. You do feel like Windows is a, a bit of an, an of an edge case, kind of like the last thing that that's that's tested. And uh, I can definitely sympathize with that. I, I think a lot of that is because honestly. Uh, when you look at the population of people that are using these tools, I mean, it, it is largely uh, a Linux uh, Linux community, and sure. the people that are contributing to the dual tools is the same way. And what I'm really excited about is getting more and more people on the in the Windows world aware of these tools, and then hopefully getting more and more of those people willing to um, uh, willing to make contributions. Um, and 
and make these make these products better and, and make sure that when new features come out that there's somebody there testing it on Windows and if it doesn't work, you know, submitting uh, submitting PRs. All right. So this is going to be the perfect audience for you because I know nothing about Packer or Boxstarter <laughs> or Vagrant, uh, only the genre of products that they are. But can you educate us, uh, .NET guys, you know, who live in a Microsoft world about these things? Sure. Sure. I'll, I will certainly uh, give it my best shot. Um, so, uh, so just to, to back up a, a little bit, I'll, I'll start off with Boxstarter because that's kind of the, the tool that that I created to solve my own personal problems and, and led me to a lot of these to a lot of these other tools. So okay. um, several years ago, you know, I was in a very common situation. I think every developer finds them in at some point or, or another, where my machine was just was hosed and um, or on the verge of being hosed, and um, I needed to basically just you know repay my machine and. and you know, to that at, at that point, every single time I had done it, and I'd done it several times, it's just such a hassle, just such a major interruption to your developer workflow. I mean, just like any other developer, you know, I had a full time job and I had things that you know I was committed to do, and um, and this and repaving this machine, which is my work machine, was going to mean you know missing some, uh, you know, not being able to deliver on some of those features uh, in the, the, the time that I wanted to, and uh, because. You know, it could be it could be a full day, or, or if not more, of you know time out of your way of of getting the OS up. You know, fig, trying to remember all the stuff that you had on your box and installing it. Some of these things are not small. You know, Visual Studio, SQL Server, um, and then you know dealing with with issues because each one has their own special settings that um, you know that work for you. You know, and uh, and all that stuff just takes takes a lot of time. And so I'm just thinking, you know, there's there's just, I mean, come on, it's uh, at the time, by 2011, 2012, at that time, I'm just thinking there's got to be, uh, a, a, there's got to be a better way. I want to be able to just, you know, do this in a heartbeat, to just do this with a, with a simple command. So, right. so that's when I started working on, working on Box Starter, and what it started off with, kind of the, the first incarnation was just basically a bunch of PowerShell scripts and. Um, and a lot of the challenge with Windows that we have are, are reboots and getting, um, you know, getting updates and getting all that stuff. So, so it's not just a matter of, you know, install this and then, then install that, but figuring out, okay, when do I reboot the box? Right. After I reboot the box, how do I, you know, continue it from where it, um, from where it left off? And, and some of the installs, you know, how do I, how do I get all the silent installer args, um, set up just right? And some, some applications are a little bit more difficult to do that than others. Um, so in the process of doing that, I discovered Chocolatey. Um, I kind of rediscovered Chocolatey, to be honest. I had um, I had found Chocolatey about a year prior to that. And just for some reason, Chocolatey just didn't quite click for me at the time when I when I initially discovered it. Do you remember um, what the reason was? Was it like the? It was. I think I was very wanted? much in the mindset of using NuGet, you know, for the way that most people use NuGet, which mm. is um, you know for installing libraries into my app. And I just didn't get like why would I. Um, I, I was trying to kind of figure out how would how does chocolatey fit into my um, fit into my application de- development lifestyle, not so much my um, you know, my physical machine. <laughs> um, and um, but in the process of building Box Order, it became crystal clear uh, what the, what the benefits were. And and as I saw that there was you know a strong ecosystem behind Chocolatey at the time, I I basically 
did, a, did away with a lot of the box art code that I had at the time and took a lot of the box art code and took it out of box art and committed it into, um, uh, into chocolatey things like, um, creating, um, creating desktop sh- shortcuts, shortcuts. Um, I added a, um, you know, I added the feed so that you can get Windows features, not just packages, but you can basically treat Windows features as packages. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform. Capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to get your free game. So your your goal was to say, take this machine right here that's set up with my comfy, cozy settings and applications and repave it with maybe this new version of Windows, perhaps, and install all my apps and set up my settings exactly the way it was? Yeah, basically, it's you know the way box order works is typically you start off with a bare OS. Um, so I, I walk up to a machine and and it's just a you know it's it's brand new. It's got just the OS. I've done nothing more than install the OS. Okay. Um, and so with a Windows machine, you know, I have what that means. I also have Internet Explorer, and um, there's lots of ways that you can do this. Uh, but one very common way is just to open up Internet Explorer. And then type in a URL, and that URL would be, um, for example, http colon slash slash boxarder.org slash package slash, and then I could give it an actual chocolatey package, or I can give it a URL to a to a GIS, or really it has to be any any HTTP resource right. that uh, that contains essentially a um, a chocolatey install script, okay. and on the fly it will create a chocolatey package from that script and start the install. So basically, basically it triggers a one-click app. Um, I see. A click once app. How does this compare to the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, Matt? So the, the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, um, which I haven't used a whole lot, but, uh, but when I have used, I've used it mainly for creating like, um, like answer files or, or unattend files. So with right. something like that, I might go in and I might say, Okay, I want to. I want to. I want an answer file that's going to basically um, do all these atom, you know, automatic settings for the OS, and then it might. Um, but then you still have to, you know, install the software and do all do all this do all your configuration settings. And some of those configuration settings are things that really aren't within the the default purview of of. Um, of the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit. Right. Um, so the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit will get you part of the way, and it's actually a, it's a it's a nice piece for for actually helping you you know going back a step further and actually installing the operating system. So it it helps you avoid the you know putting in your country and your language and you know all that and uh, and, and, install and you can at least give <laughs> you can at least give it a hook or a, or a single script. Um, to use to to kick off the deployment process, so people can people can use the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit in 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 concert with a with a tool like like BoxArder um, hmm. to uh, to get things going. But um, so but, so that's very cool. But um, the the part of that I'm really interested in here is 
you know, taking everything that's on my machine currently and, you know, either finding or making chocolatey packages for them. Yes. So that, that, that is kind of the, the holy grail. Is, and that's something that we're not quite there yet, but uh, I totally agree. If I could take my laptop as it stands today and actually say, hey, take a snapshot of this, but don't take a snapshot in the way that we think of it. Right. Um, you know, a binary snapshot. Take a, you know, basically create a script. A configuration um, you know, look at script. All the, right, exactly. Look at all the services I have running. Look yep. at my, like, you know, my, my key registry settings that determine you know, what all my um, shortcuts are and, you know, how my, I have my desktop arranged. Look at my MS, you know, my MSL, my MSI installs and, and look at all the, and, and, and look at my current chocolatey, my local chocolatey repo. And, and actually there is work going on uh, to, uh, to facilitate that. But, but right now, essentially what Bach, the, the, uh, the bit of labor that one has to do first is to create the, create the script that will do the simulation. So you still have to create that initial script. What Boxarder and Chocolatey give you are some ways to making that script easier. Uh, so they provide a lot of kind of lower level um, functions to do things like rebooting the box and picking up from where it left off, creating shortcuts, um, you know, adding adding applications and you know, turning on Windows features and, and okay. stuff like that. You know, they, they they turn these things that would be you know multi-line functions into a, into one-liners. But you do still have to kind of create this laundry list of I want this and I want this and I want this and I want my toolbar skinny and I want my you know background you know like this and 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 so you still have to do that that uh, that initial piece. Yep. So if I'm following you, it's the scenario is, oh man, you know, I've installed enough software on this machine that it, that you know, it's like fatty food, and this computer needs an angioplasty. <laughs> so too big to fail. Instead of doing what I've always done before, which was wipe the drive and start the install process again, I start working with Boxstarter and building up the script and trying that. Mm. Probably a few iterations of it, so that the time, right. the next time after this, it's a lot easier. Hmm. Right, right. The, the challenge there, and I totally get this because I, you know, this is my challenge too, is that it's a, it's a, it's a constantly evolving process, right? I mean, you, you, do, you got your box starter script just right, and and now you've got your machine just the way you want it, you know, yay. Um, months <laughs> go by, you have to do this again, but in that, in the, in the course of those months, you know, things have changed. You know, your tool set configuration yeah. has drifted. Yep, and. Um, who of us has the dis- discipline, you know, on our personal boxes to keep that configuration up? Oh, I just installed a new application. I better go off and make a chocolatey package or better, you know, update my box. Or, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't always happen. Okay, so where do uh, Vagrant and Packer come in here? So where Vagrant and Packer come in is, let's, let's, let's talk about, um, about Vagrant first. So okay. Vagrant is, it's a way of, of abstracting, really, um, Virtualization and 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 um, and it does it has some really really nice uh, features in, involved in it that makes working with with machines for people that are working on different platforms um, uh, really easy. So basically, what I can do with Vagrant is let's say I want to uh, I want to test something that that really I, I want to test it on, on a totally clean VM. So uh, what I do is I basically I I Create a configuration file, and it's just a very small configuration file that says, "Okay, I want it to 
I want you to go off and grab, let's say if I'm working with Windows, I want you to grab this Windows 2012 R2 image. So, that, so that's going to get it the, the very base, bare bones um, uh, Windows install. Mm-hmm. So it's going to go off and create a VM doing that. And then it's, then I, then in that same configuration file, I'll say, um, okay, now I want you to build a box and I have the choice of using what in the in vagrant lingo we call provisioners. And so I could have it hook into Chef, I could have it hook into Puppet, I could have it hook into just, you know, simple PowerShell files mm-hmm. and and it will then run that to get the box looking the way I want it to look. And then the other cool thing with Vagrant is it has this concept of synced folders. And one thing that I've always not been very crazy about working VMs in, in terms of just doing uh, development work. It just it's always it's just always a, an, an extra layer of pain of having to get my bits on my box that I've compiled off onto the um, off onto this test VM that I've got and you know debugging over there and all. It, it just it's just a, another layer of friction. But one thing that's nice with Vagrant is they have this this concept of sync folders. And so if I have let's say um, a, if I'm working on a web application. And I have the you know the actual application files locally on my box. Um, I can I can sync that folder to the to my Vagrant box. So let's say in the end, Vagrant box raises up a uh, Hyper-V image um, or Hyper-V uh, VM, uh, and um, and I'm working with that Hyper-V VM. What I can do is because I have a folder sync locally just on my on my local box um, to a to a, a UNC share usually is that's the way that it, it, it does it if you're working with a Windows image. Um, so it's synced to a UNC share on the uh, on the uh, on the VM. I can make changes in real time on my personal, you know, my in my local environment. And the second I hit the save button, um, those changes are are hydrated on the, on the VM. And so that makes it really easy to, to to for me to use my own tools on my local box. Um, and not have to like you know use RDP or or um, you know SSH or, or or PowerShell remoting, um, but I can just be working locally, just using my normal workflow, and then those bits just naturally hydrate on the other box. The the other big strength of Vagrant is let's say uh, so for example here where I work today, um, I personally work on a um, I do most of my work work. On a uh, on an Ubuntu on a Ubuntu laptop, so I'm using VirtualBox. I've got colleagues that are using um, Windows, so they may be using Hyper-V. I've got other people on a Mac; they're using Parallels, um, and yeah. uh, and we want to collaborate on a uh, on a project. And um, so what we can what we have we've done this. We have a single Vagrant file that um, it can go off and it can get a pull down a an image. That's that's a, a bare OS. So in, in this case, this this particular application that we're working on together um, works with Ubuntu uh, uh, and Ubuntu uh, 12 um, OS. And so it'll go off. It'll get that. And one thing that Vagrant Vagrant has this notion of providers. So there's there's two mm. key concepts in Vagrant. There's providers and there's provisioners. And so providers are typically that's your hypervisor. That's your that's your cloud provider. Mm-hmm. That's what the actual image is going to to sit on. And so you've got providers for Hyper-V, providers for VirtualBox, providers for Azure, 
um, for it's a for virtual AWS. VM creation tool. <laughs> exactly right, right. It just it abstracts that whole thing. It lets so it's, it's all plugin driven essentially. Yeah. So people have created plugins that will integrate Azure with Vagrant. That'll integrate Hyper-V uh, with Vagrant, and um, and so that way. You know, I'm working on on, a, on an Ubuntu host, and I need to go and I need to go off and, and work with with VirtualBox. Um, I've got a you know my buddy is working on um, uh, is working on a Mac, and he needs parallels. We can all use the same Vagrant file, and so the beauty of this is that mm. in the end, it, this all comes down to a, a source controlled artifact um, that's one file that's fairly small. You know, we don't have to source control the actual you know multi-gigabyte image itself. Mm. You know, all I have to give to people is this small file, and that small file will tell people where to go to get the right image that, you know, it, it, it has the smarts to look at their, at their environment to see what hypervisor they're working with um, or what cloud provider they want to work with. Are and then, yeah. Are there subtle differences between platforms of how they implement these providers that uh, would, you know, prevent you from using one technology or another? Um, there are some, I mean, there are definitely differences. So depending on, you know, what host system and what guest system you have, that, that whole folder syncing, uh, uh, mechanism that I just talked about mm-hmm. is going to use totally different technologies. So example, it may use rsync. Mm-hmm. Um, it may use UNC shares, uh, depending on whether or not, you know, who's the host and who's the guest, um, will determine what it uses. And and you know historically there have been you know pain with 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 some that um for example uh it used to be that the um uh the bringing up a sync folder from a windows host to a windows guest uh wasn't working for a time i i, I submitted a pr to get basically get smb working uh between the two so now you you know now that uh, now that works but there's certain things there there's um um Okay. Well, I get it. I get the idea. I just want to know yeah. if they, you know, we shouldn't expect, uh, you know, just black box magic from everything. There are. Yeah. There's to... always, you know, there's always a, a bit of, you know, a bit of uncertainty. You know, it's not always a black, you know, right. not always black box sure. magic. That's sure. All right. We'll yeah. get back to how this fits in with your tool chain in just a minute. But first, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yes, sir. It's time to announce my new tool set, Box Cutter. Box cutter? For those times when you want to completely destroy your machine so it can never, ever be used again for <laughs> anything. You are on the fifth floor. You can cut a box pretty good. <laughs> box breaker, box smasher, there box hoser. Let's, oh, uh, wasn't that a David Letterman bit? I don't, Jesus, I don't know. I'm not even going there. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a music to code by audio and video set to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Before I tell you who won today, let me tell you about music to code by. This is my project that's uh, been very successful. I started it last August, I believe, and uh, did a Kickstarter campaign. It's really a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized quiet and groovy instrumentals. That's right, it's music. Specifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. So it's uh, straddling that line that it's neither boring nor distracting, which turns out is a difficult thing to do with music. Uh, .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By. See what all the fuss is about at mtcb.pwop. That's P-W-O-P 
com. Didn't I see you interacting with uh, Sarah Ford? Yeah, she picked she was- it up and she's loving it. Uh, it's, it's helping her uh, get into uh, iPhone development. Well, iPhone development, yeah. 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 It's really interesting. It's cool. All right, dude, who's our winner? Today's winner is Rob Heckert. Congratulations, Rob. Yes. Golf clap for you. And uh, Rob just won the music to code by set, uh, the, the video and the audio. The video is really only available for winners. It's a two and a half hour documentary on the making of this music. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, <laughs> Matt, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you be buying? Oh boy! Well, so I've been I've been thinking about this question because I'm a I'm a regular listener to the show and and uh, I knew this was coming. So uh, um, I'm I'm kind of in a position where I'd, I'd like to revamp my my personal uh, you know, workspace. So um, one that means one I need a, a new monitor, and you can easily drop several K on, on new monitors these days. So right. I, I, and you know, when you say monitor, you mean monitors. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. With a capital M. Um, yes, yeah. and, and, uh, so, you know, 27, 32 inch 4k, um, you know, so big and high, high resolution. Um, so, I mean, that can, that can end things quickly. Um, I, I have yet to find a 4k monitor that I looked at and said, I must have that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the technology is still it's sort of on the bubble there. still. The well priced ones are too small to be used at full resolution, and the r- full resolution big ones are kind of big, kind of wonky, and very expensive. Yeah. Um, the other thing uh, that I could use is a um, so right now I've got an X one. Uh, generation one Lenovo for my personal machine. My work machine is an, is an X1 generation two. Um, and it might be time for a generation three. Uh, and that can set you back a couple grand. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Folks love but, uh, their carbons. Like that everybody I've met who's got one. My wife has one for work right now too. It's the best, most it. amazing machine she's ever used. Yeah. It, exa- yeah. Yeah. I've been doing this for a long time. It is hands down the best machine I've ever used. And so until I find something, you know, better. I'm sticking with this thing. And the thing is, especially when I'm doing with a person, personal machine, I tend to skimp on the hard drive space because that's where things start getting expensive. So when I got the one that I have now, the first generation, I got the 128 gig, um, which is just ridiculous. So I, I, in fact, I wrote a whole blog post about basically how to optimize the, the SD storage. <laughs> so what I do is I put my base images on, S, on an SD card and right. then I use a differencing disk locally um so i'm just reading from the sd card you know the base you know the base os image um so that gets me 64 gigs extra gigs right there but uh you know once you start getting into the uh you know the 500 gig you know clearly a terabyte you know you're talking it's kind of a different echelon of uh of cash so so yeah, yeah, yeah the, those, the, those ssds are still substantially pricey and it's it's a real debate as to how much storage you need in a laptop Right now, the thing is, you know, because you know, like we say with Box Starter and Packer, I do a lot of VM work, um, and I do a lot of you know testing with creating images, 
And so that, you know, it can be some pretty hefty files, and it adds up pretty darn quick. Yeah, no kidding. But does it have to be SSD? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, so I've done a lot of, um, a lot of, com- you know, performance comparisons, with, at least, at least with what I do, um, you know, comparing mechanical with SSD. And I've just found that, um, SSD can just be, um, you know, exponentially faster. Oh, than, it's incredible. Uh, the, the yeah. Mechanical. No doubt about it's it. Just, but- my problem when I'm time. developing stuff is I'm running on this magical hardware and my customer isn't. Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, but um, when it comes to my personal, you know, usually though, at least the, the thing with SSD versus HD is um, you're really just looking at performance. So at least you know that if it runs on my machine, it's probably still going to run, you know, if that's the only difference. Um Functionally, it'll probably still work unless unless you have limitations with timeouts and 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 things like that. But um, but but yeah, I've I've, I've found that you just it's got to be it's got to be SSD. Otherwise, you're just you're you're doing a lot of a lot of waiting. Me like SSD. Yeah, go faster. I please. like SSD. Yes. More. <laughs> yes. More. I have yeah. a, I have a one terabyte SSD that's waiting for Windows 10. I'm going to install. Oh, awesome! Awesome. That's that's very, very cool. It's and I'm sure very expensive. For at least um, it cost you probably a good chunk of change there. But, um, yeah, but I want it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there, there comes a point of you know the R. You know, it could it it may make sense. You know, the ROI is uh, can definitely be there. Yeah, it's also it's so it's funny that you mentioned box cutter in in your jokes. That so that's actually a real there's a real thing out there called no. box cutter. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would be remiss not to uh, yeah, you have to not do to that. mention it. Yeah, so when we when we get into Packer, which actually may be a, a good time to do now. So um, Packer is basically so you've got Vagrant, and essentially the the main. Um, the main consumable that Vagrant uses is what's called a box file. And so a box file is essentially a tar GZ'd up um, file that includes your image. So if it's a Hyper-V image, it's going to include your, your VHD or your VHDX, and a- along with the, the, the metadata file that, that just says, you know, what this VM is and, and what VHD it uses. So essentially it has two key files in it, the, the, the image and the, um, uh, and the metadata, uh, depending on, depending on what hypervisor you're using. If you're using, you know, um, Hyper-V, uh, before Windows 10, it was an XML file, um, which Vagrant still will only understand, but, uh, but like the, the commenter on today's show, mentioned now they've totally changed that so we'll see where where that goes but at any rate um so you've got this box file and you create different box files for different providers so if i had um if i wanted to, to expose a a windows 2012 r2 image for use on virtualbox and for use on hyper-v i'd have to create two different box files um, okay. so how do you create these box files um because so there, there's a whole bunch of box files that you can get that you can just get for free. If you go to atlas.hashicorp.com, that's basically the public repository uh, for these for these files. So HashiCorp is the company that is behind Boxstarter, they're behind Packer, they're behind a lot of other really cool tools like um, Terraform is another one. Console, um, 
it'd be, I'd definitely encourage people to just go out and check out the site and check out the tools. They've got some really cool automation stuff yeah. out there. But at any rate, they have, um, they're kind of their front facing, um, uh, web tool is called Atlas. And it's basically, you can kind of think of it as, as almost CI for infrastructure. So, which, um, so on Atlas, they will, um, it's almost like a gallery where they'll say, okay, here's a bunch of vagrant, you know, box files that, that, that you can, that you can consume. And they, and Atlas also has build services for creating your own box files. Okay. Um, so, so one way, so one way, um, and this is often the easiest way is just to find the box file that works. Um, but with, um, but you may have certain things that you want your box, your, your initial image pre-configured a certain way. So maybe you want your initial image to have, you know, all the Windows updates, and you also want to have kind of the base um, configuration management client sure. installed. You, um, let's just say if you're using Chef or, or Puppet, you, you want those agents already on the machine. And so um, because you don't so, want to do that every single time you provision a new machine. So do you have to start with a, with a Windows ISO from Microsoft, or do they actually have at HashiCorp, do they actually have Windows images? So that's where Packer comes in. Is, is if you have a Windows ISO, um, so if you want to create this, um, this box file, so the box, so let's just say we're, we're dealing with Hyper-V. Mm-hmm. So I want to create a box file, and in the end, I need a VHD. Well, before I need a VHD, I need an ISO, right? Or, right. Um, but, you know, I, I need the base right. image. Now, you can go to Microsoft, and you can go to their evaluation center, and you can actually get these in VHD form. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it easier to get the ISO because that's more um, universally transferable. Yeah. Um, so, um, so basically, the way Packer works is Packer... Um, exposes kind of this whole this whole um, workflow of essentially taking a in the case of Windows taking an ISO file and and transforming that ISO file uh, into a VHD or into a you know a VDI or a you know VMDK whatever your whatever your underlying hypervisor engine is and you can add what's called in, in Packer post processors so. Um, so basically, a, a Packer workflow has uh, three main steps to it. There's the builder step, where it takes your, in the case of Windows, it would take your ISO and it would build a a, a VHD. In the case of, of Hyper-V, actually, the Hyper-V, at least my personal experience, the Hyper-V uh, builder doesn't hasn't been working for me. Perhaps it's because I'm on Windows 10, uh, so I typically use VirtualBox with, with Packer currently. So it, it creates a VMDK, which is essentially a a virtual box and also a VMware um, compatible base image. So the so the builder creates that, and then it goes into the provisioner step, and then I can tell it, okay, here's a bunch of scripts that I want you to run, or here's a chef cookbook uh, that I want you to com- that I want you to converge, or um, and uh, and so then it, by the time it gets done with the provisioning step, that that base image now looks the way I want it. And then I can add a post processor that says, okay, here's a post processor. When you're done, now make a vagrant file out of it. And so basically it'll take that VHD and, and the metadata and do what it needs to do to pop out a dot box file. And so to go back to box cutter, <laughs> box cutter is a project that you can find on GitHub um, at github.com slash box cutter, B-O-X-C-U-T-T-E-R. And that's, so that's the org, uh, the GitHub org, and under that org, they have all these different repositories that are basically mapped to different um, operating systems. So there's okay. a Windows 
uh, repo. And what you'll find in there are a bunch of different Packer templates. So the way Packer works is you start off with a template, which, and what that is, it's a JSON file, essentially. Okay. It's a JSON file that basically is a, you know, a collection of arrays, essentially. So my first array is my builder array, in which I give it basically just different steps. So it's going to run these steps in, the, in order. It may, and it may just be one step. Um, and, um, and then I'm going to give it my array of provisioners. I'm going to give it my array of, um, of, uh, of post processors. But at any rate, you know, I, I can talk about this, but as some listeners are probably already getting, like, this starts getting complicated. <laughs> and, and it's really helpful um, if somebody would just do this for me, um, or at least provide a working example that I can go and, and look to. And that's uh, one thing that I've found box cutter really helpful is what, what, if I'm trying to figure out, like, how does this work or, or how would, how would I make my template look? And it's got more than templates. It's got everything you need. So it's got templates. It's got URLs to go to get the right, um, Windows ISO, you know, if you want just an evaluation, uh, version. It's got, um, example answer files. So the way that typically people will use Packer with Windows is it'll, yeah. they'll give it an answer file, you know, which um, we talked about earlier on the show. Is what you would typically use um, Microsoft Development Toolkit to, to create one of those. You can certainly, I typically just create them by hand, but um, but here you've got all these example answer files of what those would look like, you know, and um, and it's actually it's a great it's a it's a Great project to check out if you want to okay. kind of see working versions of how this stuff would actually look. All right, great. So let me zoom back a little bit and see if I can uh, sort of summarize what what we're talking about here. And and by the way, I'm reading this right off of your Hurry Up and Wait I.O. blog, creating Windows base <laughs> images for VirtualBox and Hyper-V using Packer, Box, Starter, and Vagrant. So the way it goes is you get your ISO of Windows, use a Packer template to load that in a VirtualBox VM and customize mm-hmm. it using an auto auto unattended XML file. You optimize the image with box starter, installing all the windows updates and shrinking as much as possible. You output with box starter, a vagrant dot box file for creating a new virtual box VMs with this image. And then, you know, once you're in vagrant, you can go anywhere and you can share it on right. atlas.hashicorp.com. Exactly. Yeah. I could put, if I want to share that box with other people, I could put it on Atlas and all I need is that box file. And if I have that box file and I have Vagrant, all I have to do is, is just tell Vagrant, okay, take this box file. The, the, the command is just simply Vagrant up and, um, and bam, it just, it just creates a VM and, and, and loads in the, the image in there. But before you do all that, you said you could probably just go to atlashashicorp.com and find a Vagrant box that's close to what you want. Download it, and then could you load that into Box Starter, customize it, and and oh, absolutely, it? yeah. So my personal predicament was I wanted to be able to have a a Windows image that was as small as I could possibly get it. Because one it. of the challenges, so I, I do a lot of both Windows and and Linux work, and one of the challenges with Windows that that things are getting a lot better now, but typically your images are much bigger than um than a yep. Linux image is. That's right. I just it's it's a it's just a, it's a lot of friction because you have to you have to download the image from somewhere online typically and then you've got to load that image into the VM and it just it takes a lot longer so there's been a lot of there were a lot of improvements made in 2012 R2 Windows 8.1 that allowed you to, to shrink that image down so things like features on demand so one right. thing that you can do now is if you're not using a feature you can just you know you can totally remove it from the box. 
Um, and they've also got a lot of co- some, some cleanup VISM commands that will basically clean out your, you know, what's, what's called the, you know, the side-by-side or, or mm-hmm. you know, SXSX, SXS directory, which if you, you know, use a, you know, like a, a disk size type tool that, that's typically where a lot of your space is going, it'll shrink that down because that contains things like rollback files for updates. And typically, once I do an update, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to roll back. Um, yeah, maybe 24 hours, but longer than that, it's like, oh, no, we're committed. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And I mean, honestly, you can save gigabytes um, yeah. by running, you know, by running these commands. And, and then, and then you want to, there's, there's another kind of final step you have to go through to, to make sure that not only do you, um, you know, defrag the disk and, and get rid of everything that you want to get rid of, but you actually zero out the space, um, yeah. that, that you're not using. Because what that's going to do is that's going to allow the compression that compresses that image and creates that final box file to do a much better job. Um, and that, that also can save you, can save you gigabytes. I've found that in my Windows 8 machine, and I don't know about you guys, but uh, I found a huge performance and space increase when I removed the Windows search service. And right. that means you can't really go to the start menu and start typing and stuff. But if you know where your apps are and you make shortcuts to them on the tool, toolbar or on the desktop or whatever, it's, it, you don't miss it. Right, yeah. And so, so in my case, when I was doing this, I wanted this, you know, I wanted this very, you know, lightweight um, 2012 R2 image, and that, it just wasn't out there. Um, most of the ones that I saw were, you know, around five, around five gigs um, or, or more, and I wanted to see if I can get one, if I could get one smaller. And so, um, because there wasn't one out, one out there, I needed to, to build it. And at first, I was creating it by hand. I've, I've got a lot of blog posts that, that talk about kind of that whole process that don't really go into the automation of getting it done, but just what it what it was that I did to get it smaller. And then I you know, believe my most recent blog post um, as of this date is what I actually did to, to do the final automation. And now it's just uh, it's just a, a one command that I pump it, that I put in. And uh, so I typically use Windows evaluation. Um, Versions because I I use this stuff for testing. I'm not using uh, this for you know long-lasting uh, production images. And yeah, there's um, no reason to set up licensing when you're going to create it, run it for an hour, and tear it down again. Exactly. R- right. Yeah. P- precisely. And um, but these these things you know with uh, when you're doing the evaluation versions, they last 180 days. Mm-hmm. So um, you know from the first time you you spin the thing up, you've got you know the the, the clock starts ticking. Right. And so. Um, so every once in a while, yeah, you have to go and kind of you have to refresh this thing. And so what I'd like to do is get this on a just on a schedule. And so what what Ashicorp, what that Atlas site has, is it it allows you to actually um, build the, the 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 image using their services online. Currently, they have a timeout so that it can only take so long, and then it'll just stop. Which I think the default as of today's date is about two hours. Now. On the Windows on the Windows basket, the way that I, that I like it, it takes about five hours. Um, most of the time is, is just pulling up pulling in the updates. And there's certainly some optimizations that can be done. Um, so far, what I do is I do this on a uh, <laughs> on my daughter's old computer, so it doesn't have SSD, so it could probably uh, uh, be faster. I just I needed some bare metal that I could run VirtualBox off of. One one tricky thing is you can't run VirtualBox and Hyper-V. 
Um, there's some tricks to run it off the same machine if you have separate boot records, but I've just had, personally, I've had horrible things happen when I try to uninstall one, for instance, right. and it just does not leave the box in a good state. So I just, as a matter of principle, I do not install both in the same box anymore. But, um, uh, yeah, so so with Atlas, uh, and, and they have, I've, I've had some brief conversations with them, and they're going to extend this timeout. So once once that's done, what I can do is I can just have, you know, I can set up a schedule, and I can just, on Atlas every month, I can have it build this image, pop it out, and not pop it out and give it to me, but pop it out and just put it on my um, under my account on, uh, on on Atlas, and basically I do nothing, which uh, is a pretty good workflow. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to them extending that, that time out. I'm wondering, I mean, I feel like a lot of the ways we've talked about this so far is about building dev workstations and dev instances, but it, does this yes. ultimately become a production tool for servers yes. too? Yes. So yeah, no, it's good that you bring this up. So yeah, there's, um, there's that, uh, there's a saying that's become popular in, in the past several months about, um, uh, pets versus cattle. And, uh, yeah. and so th- just to, to give a little context, you know, when you're kind of working in a, in a cloud type of environment, your servers as cattle, like I don't care you know, what the name of these cattle, you know, are, uh, I don't care if, you know, one particular um, head of cattle is more special than another head of, you know, it's just cattle to me. That's all, that's all I, I see. So, so far, mm. our conversation and a lot of the tools like Vagrant and Box really optimized for pets. You know, this is my own dev machine. You know, it is special to me. I, I, I do have a special feeling towards my personal laptop, which we won't really talk about. But, um, uh but when it gets when you when you get down like so here at work at CenturyLink Cloud, um, we have we do have cattle, and um, and then there's there's all sorts of there are different work workflows and different tools that you want to start bringing into the mix. So one nice thing about Boxarder is that it's it's easy to use, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself well to large scale production. Um, and what I typically recommend people, you know, in a in a position where they're dealing with with that kind of load, is to work with a tool like Chef or Puppet, as it really is, um, you know, more geared for for dealing with lots and lots of of, of servers. And so, so in that in that case, I may st- I still will use Vagrant um, in my workflow for for testing. So I've got um, Let's say I've got in my production servers. I've got HA Proxy. I've got you know RabbitMQ. I've got IAS boxes. Um, I've got all right. these different you know kinds of boxes, different kinds of flavors of boxes. I you know I want to I want to automate the setup of each of those boxes, but because the nature of those boxes are fundamentally different, um, they they have totally different you know scripts that that set them up, and so. I will use, you know, I may use Vagrant or, or I may use other tools, uh, to help me test, um, getting, getting that particular type of box up. I might use, you know, I might use that to help me test, you know, getting an HA proxy box up. But once it goes off into the wild, um, I may use other tools that will actually provision them into my, into my live data center. You know, I won't use Vagrant to, to provision, you know, a, uh, an, an HA proxy cluster. Uh, into my data center. What I will use, what I, what we use here at, um, 
at CenturyLink is chef provisioning. Um, and again, but it's, it's very similar to, to a lot of the vagrant philosophies is it all boils down to configuration files and code. Um, and so in the end, all of these servers out there, in my mind, in my perspective, it's, it's software. Um, and, and, and just like creating a website, uh, where I have to, you know, I want to make sure I, you know, develop the website, I test the website, I do the, I have the same flow with my infrastructure. You know, I, I have, I have to, to use code to, uh, to develop the, the servers and I, and I, I have the same testing rigor, uh, to make sure that those servers look the way that I intend for them to look once that code has actually run. And, um, and that can be tricky in, in infrastructure because there's a lot of different patterns that you're going to have to use in infrastructure that you may be used to using, let's say, you know, web development, for example. Um, so the you know, feedback cycles uh, may be a lot longer uh, because you're actually bringing up a, a VM uh, and tearing down a VM. And um, while you may not need to bring up a new VM for every single change that you make to the code, um, so let's say I start I start iterating and I start putting in some some installation scripts and some other scripts to make the box the way I look like it. You know I I I have my test harness that creates a VM and then things don't go quite right and so I don't go to the process go to the, the the hassle of raising up a new VM. But by the time I do think I have everything right, I absolutely want to start from scratch because there's I want to make sure that I I don't have any side effects that I've that I've ne- neglected to look at. And so I need to make sure that it's still going to work if I start from zero. And and here, when we start dealing with with things like, um, especially things like HAProxy and that run on Linux, then I can start using containers and and get that feedback cycle down even you know much more tighter because can, I can get a, and I know you guys have talked about containers before, and, and so we'll use we'll use Docker containers uh, for a lot of our Linux images because. I can get those, I can get one of those spun up in in milliseconds, and it's uh, yeah. definitely very exciting to see what Windows is doing there because I can't wait to get that same kind of feedback cycle uh, for Windows images as well. Well, and it also speaks this whole the movement towards containers, like how much right now you you've said it a few times the struggle of the size of the VMs, like Docker might eliminate yeah. this aspect entirely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's it's much. Smaller. I mean, a container. Um, and I can only speak for Docker, um, you know, Linux containers. But I, I'm assuming since Microsoft is is following in that, you know, they're going to be using the same APIs. Um, that that there's some crossover concepts here. But basically, for a container, you're just looking at the disk. So you, that that container is only as big as the difference of the base image to you know what I've built up is. You know, it doesn't include that whole OS layer, which is tends to be the big part. Um, and so it makes, yeah, it makes lugging these things around just so much easier. And you have just totally different patterns uh, um, developing now. So one, one common pattern that you'll, that you hear about a lot now is, um, um, is, uh, oh, what's the one? <laughs> it's um, something infrastructure, uh, use this word all the immutable infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so the idea being mm-hmm. that we don't need to update our servers anymore. Like, why should I, why should I, Go to the trouble, you know. So I've got new software that I'm putting out. Why should I go to the trouble of, of of updating the software? Why don't I just blow the thing away and and put up a, a whole new server instead? You know, now that it's gotten now that that's gotten to be so fast. Um, now again, that you know, 
that sounds a lot easier than it is, depending on your architecture. So you know, you have things like you know, these things called databases um, that can introduce some complexity there. But you know, depending on the infrastructure, um, like let's just say if you're just talking front-end web nodes, um, oftentimes those those do work well. With just you know, just let's just tear it down and, and bring a new one in. Let's, let's not you know, so much can go wrong when you mm. update software from state A to state B. Um, Let's not worry about that and just blow it away and bring up a new one. Matt, we're just about out of time. Is there anything uh, that you want to throw in there at the last minute, uh, stuff that you want to promote? Um, I would definitely go have a look at um, at, uh, at Test Kitchen. Um, so I believe uh, the, um, the URL for that is hpkitchen.ci. Um, so we didn't really talk about that, but that is a great tool for for doing this testing. It provides a lot of the same kind of plug-in functionality uh, that we talked about with Vagrant, but, but plug-in text functionality for bringing up test instances, um, running actual test runners that will actually verify uh, the software that that, um, that you've installed or the, the configuration that you've made, and then tearing them down. So take a look at that tool. It's most commonly used with Chef, but uh, but people have have made it work with Puppet. People have made it work with just straight up DSC. Um, and Ansible and all sorts of other tools. So uh, give that give that a look as well. Awesome, Matt Rock. Thank you very much for joining us on this uh, uh, on this show. It's been enlightening for me, and I hope it has uh, opened the doors for some of our listeners. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate being on the show. Fun after listening to it for long. Yeah. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...